0: Welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yeah. How you
1: doing? I'm doing great. Um, but I'm, uh, I'm at a cross- crossroads actually. Something, okay. I know you have something to talk about at the sure. top of the show here. But I want to mention something real quick to the listeners. Okay. The, the young listeners. How young are we talking? I don't know. Early 20s teenagers. Okay. I have the app and I have started a Battleship Pretension Snapchat I started it forever ago. Okay. Every time I open my phone, yeah. I see the Snapchat logo. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with Snapchat. Take pictures of your dick, <laughs> obviously. Uh, yeah, okay. But because it's Battleship Retention, sometimes you have to take pictures of mine if you want. <laughs> so. Um, so, for one thing, it's Battleship Retention with no vowels, just like the... Um, the official Twitter that Mm -hmm. we never talk about. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) We each have our own Twitter. There is a battleship retention Twitter. Yeah. Um, It mostly just retweets or just tweets out links to the website. Um, That's pretty much all it does. Yeah. Um, But uh, now there's a, there's a Snapchat. There has been for a long time, but I never use it. Yeah. I want a younger listener to give me a tutorial. Sure. To teach me how to Snapchat. Yeah. So that's, I'm putting that out there. All right, that's, uh, no, I,
0: I had Snapchat as well because, um, like, Jen likes to use it and, and all that. Just what does she wave. do? She, like, takes, like, funny photos for her friends and stuff and, and, like, short videos for her friends to just go back and forth. And so, like, she wanted me to, u- and so I started to use it. To me, it's not, intu- it's not intuitive. Like, it doesn't seem, You. it's not that But that's just, because just, we're just old. I think it might just be that we're old. Yeah. But at the same time like I can figure out I can figure out most apps and most like social media things but I'm looking through that and it's just like I don't like I said it's just it's it's not that it's not user friendly it might be too user friendly well, like it's almost like everything is shorthand no
1: it's too user friendly in that it's too narcissistic okay and I'll okay. tell you why all right it weirds me out that when you open the app it's already open to the camera pointed at yeah. you like to me if I open Twitter, Twitter is assuming first first that I'm there to read other people's tweets. Sure. Which is probably right. Yeah. Eh, I don't know if that's true. But um, that's the assumption. Whereas Snapchat is, the first thing it's doing is saying, yeah. make this about you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that, that is the first yeah. thing it's inviting you to do. <laughs> I do find that a little awkward. What is thy bidding, my master, is <laughs> what it's saying. Yeah. All right, so... Um, now we got the important stuff out of the way. What did you want to talk about? <laughs> all right. So I'm, I'm going to launch. This is one of my, we all have our
0: pet issues. Uh-huh. And this is mine. And, as, and I've had it for a while. And as far as I can tell, I am alone. Uh, I've explained it to so people. So when you say various, a pet issue. It, there's a thing. It's not a pet peeve. Okay. It is a, 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 tre- a social trend that I've noticed. Uh-huh. And it bothers me. So, it's a larger thing. It's not. It's sort dis- of like your bete noir. Uh, sure. Right. I've heard that. I don't think I know what it means. I assume it means pet issue. <laughs> no, I think it means black beast. Oh, my. <laughs> sure. Okay. I think of uh, it more as a white whale. Um, <laughs> okay. That, that, too. So, here's the deal. For the last few days on Twitter, and there's been a big, uh, big hullabaloo about it, there's been the hashtag uh, mate captain. Ma- no. Give Captain America a boyfriend.
1: I haven't seen that. I've seen Give Elsa a Girlfriend. Sure,
0: okay. And you know what? That one I'm more on board with. It actually doesn't matter. I don't care if you make Cap gay. I do think you you might need to retcon some of the... Well, they, they always do that. Right. But that doesn't actually... I don't care much about Captain America. What bothers me, here's where it gets me, is people say, give Cap a boyfriend, and that boyfriend should be Bucky. No, I say no. Here's why. Here's why. Because it is possible for men to have legitimate best friends uh-huh. that they love and would die for, and there is no element of sexual attraction. I hate this shit. Because if we are trying to create a culture in which men are, uh, feel more free... To express themselves and express how they feel towards e- towards other people in general, including other friends. It's why the title "I Love You, Man" is funny. You know. Yeah. It's just like it bothers me so much that like, if you should uh, okay, I think this first kicked in with that show Kings, which was oh, right. like a modern retelling of the story of David. Yeah. Well, in the Bible, um, and this again. It doesn't bother me in the way you might think. David and Jonathan in the Bible are best friends. They are willing to die for one another. And Jonathan's father, Saul, hates David to such a degree that he wants to kill him. So Jonathan is literally siding with David because he's his friend and his father's going crazy. Like, that's how close they are. Yeah. Well, when it comes time for kings, obviously, John- the Jonathan character, played, oddly enough, by Sebastian Stan, who also plays Bucky, um, <laughs> They they just they go ahead and just make him gay, and I just like look. If you want to make a character gay,
1: that's fine. But you're saying but just, where is the cultural space for the male best friend?
0: Yes, absolutely. It's why I hate the term bromance. Hate it huh. because it implies that if you are close with someone, if, if two guys are close, oh, it's like a bromance, or it's like oh, you're going out on ma- on a man date. No, I'm hanging out with a friend. Can't that be anything? You know, like. It just it bothers me, and I feel like like I, I'm I'm heightening my my exasperation for for effect. But I genuinely think it's not a good thing.
1: I, it's not. I mean, and no one gives a shit about it as much as I do. Right. Well, here's the thing. And then, I mean, I'm, no, I don't want to make this about me. Okay. Um. We'll click on Snapchat and, and I, get started. <laughs> <laughs> I am agreeing with you in the logical part of my brain sure but i also recognize that i am a person who has trouble being open with other men sure like when i when i was looking for a therapist there it never entered my mind mm -hmm. like i am not gonna have a male therapist because there's i can't do i can't okay i can't open like that be open like that to men so i think i'm part of the problem here Well, I have... That's not... I'm not talking about that issue. I'm saying that, like... But I have this trouble. I I have the same trouble of, like... I don't know. I can't be best friends. We're best friends. (laughs) Oh, no, we're not. You have other friends that you like more than you like me. That's almost certainly true. Hang on now. And my best friend is my wife.
0: Oh, I like that, and I'm on board with that. Uh, It's true. Your wife is also my best friend. (laughs) Um, I do like her more than I like you, by a wide margin. But, um... But no, that's a, it's. I'm not talking about the idea of this is a it, that like if if guys have a hard time uh, expressing themselves to other other men or anything. I, I think that can be a problem. I don't think that's the issue. It's that if we're trying to get away from the Don Draper... if we all agree that the way Don Draper conducts his his emotional life mm-hmm. is not a good thing, then we need to destigmatize the idea that guys can be close. You're absolutely uh, right. Without this other thing, and so. If you want to give Captain America a boyfriend, introduce someone new. I don't want this Bucky or shit. it could be I don't someone else.
1: To- there's there's plenty of characters in the Marvel...
0: There's plenty plenty yeah, of fish in the Marvel That's seat. fine. I don't mean someone that we've already established he is friends with. Because then... Right. Okay. It's, it, it could be the Falcon character who's who's already been established and they are close friends. Just like, let them be friends. It could be Deadpool.
1: Oh, that'd be hot. I'm on board with that. Are yeah. you kidding me? That's a lot of abs. You know? What was that? I was reading about... Something about Deadpool being bisexual. I can't remember.
0: I I mean, he's probably everything, honestly. So that's my issue. It actually has less to do with making the character gay and more to do with people's choice of boyfriend. And I think it's, A, I think it's uncreative. It's just like, well, let's just go with Bucky. But also, I think it's counterintuitive to a larger thing we're trying to do.
1: When people are saying um, give Cap a boyfriend, are they talking about um, in the comic books or are they talking about uh, Chris Evans? Probably all the above. Okay. Um, I'm also, I have a harder time with the, with what
0: they're doing in the comic books where, and I've I've only read a little bit about this, that apparently they're going to play it, that uh, they're going to have this new reveal that, oh, it turns out Captain America was a Hydra agent the whole time. It's like, all right, how about this? How about you make him be a full-on patriot and just make him gay? Like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because it's just I I have less of a pro, uh, significantly less of a problem with that. Yeah, but the, like, than this Hydra thing, it's they're just they're gonna like, they're gonna fix it. like. I know it just bothers me. It, do, it just, doesn't bother me. I think it's a it's a uh, there's a word that I'm looking for because I him being him being Captain America and being gay, they can that that still fits within the confines of the character. But for him to be a, a an agent of of Hydra, it's yeah. just like there's I, enough I, I, that. that I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> I'm not saying you should. Yeah. And that's the thing. I didn't grow up but now, loving Captain America. I didn't he? Didn't I? Didn't yeah. care that much about him. But stuff like that. It's when you when you introduce things that negate huge aspects of the character. Just because, like, ah, oh, let's give this a try. It just uh, it it puts me off a little bit.
1: Um. But I now, got dist- now I, I, got distra- I got distracted. But this I'm, Bucky thing
0: is what's getting me.
1: I'm obsessed with. My head is now thinking: What if? The movie that finally gets the barrier between Fox Marvel and Marvel Marvel to fall down. Sure. Is a steamy NC seventeen Cap Deadpool romance. Just Chris Ooh. Evans and Ryan Reynolds bare asses, just, just fucking just really going yeah. for it. That's the movie And you know that, what
0: I want to see? I also oh, want to see I would see that the Evan Peters Quicksilver and the Aaron Taylor Johnson Quicksilver <laughs> Also, just going at it, but like really
1: fast. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and also Aaron Taylor Johnson's character is still a corpse. (laughs) It's like, wow, they're really going, uh, you know, Caligula with this
0: thing. So anyway, so that's uh, so I'm glad that you're you're on board with me. Yeah, I am on board. But time I've tried to, now I'm
1: down on myself that I have trouble being open with men. I'm sure it's not as big of a deal as you think it is.
0: Eh, You know, you've been very. very open and honest uh, to me.
1: As far say, as you know.
0: Say, oh, <laughs> hang on now. Hang on now. <laughs> Listeners, my mind is, is being blown right now. Uh-huh. Uh, so is it positive things or negative things you're not saying?
1: I'm just saying that I'm, I'm just joking. Okay. I'm saying that there are things about myself that I don't reveal very freely. Are you hiding things from me, David? Probably.
0: I bet it's that you're attracted to me. <laughs> obviously. So, okay, we can, yeah, m- Well, we now can your, m- your mind's m- not m- the only thing that is going to get blown. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> oh, d- the minute I said that, I'm like, we can use that, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So thank you, uh, David for indulging me in that. that was and fun. listeners feel free to weigh in. Um, because I think this might be the best I've ever actually explained it, but I've been saying this shit for years. Um, that bromance thing bothers me to no end. Okay, so this episode, everybody, is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only five ninety nine a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Now, this week, Mubi closes out uh, there can take over with a double bill of Palme d'Or winners. Uh, Nani Moretti's, the Sun's room, which I've heard wonderful things about, but I mm-hmm. unfortunately have not seen, but then also, and once again, I never, I feel bad. I never quite know what order to put this in. Uh, Chen, uh, it's probably not cage but uh how do you say his that name well i i've been saying kaigi,
1: Kai-Gi. for a long time but that's, that's best not right either okay
0: well let's <laughs> we'll stick with that cuz you know it better than i do chen kaigi's farewell my concubine which i haven't seen but you love i do i briefly it, talk
1: about it uh it's uh, it's an it's an epic um that also is, a, there's a word for this sort of thing. Like uh, there's a like a, a, an Italian word, like a Roman or Latin word, Roman something mm-hmm. um, that uses a character. In this case, a couple of characters over a long period of time to tell the story, not only their story, but the story of the culture that they're in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about um, Chinese uh, opera performers uh, and I don't want to go into too much detail about what it's about because um, I want people to check it out on a movie and also because it has been over 10 years, but I, okay. I do love this movie. It's the movie that um, exposed me this and raise the red lantern. I saw at the same time, that's a great movie of uh, both great movies. And uh, I, I didn't see them literally at the same time, like you know, oh, side man, by that'd side. Be fun. Um, but uh, I saw them around the same time and the movies that sort of turned me on to that generation called fifth generation uh chinese filmmakers um those are the chen kai and zhang yi are the uh are the are the the big ones probably and we've covered zhang yi uh mm-hmm. on this uh podcast extensively um and chen kai is maybe a little bit more of a classical filmmaker i guess than zhang yi zhang yi mm-hmm. is willing to be uh a little more um i don't know what the word is that's not who we're talking about. Yeah. Um Chinghai Ge makes movies that are recognizable as big movies. Like yeah. this feels that, you know Farewell My Concubine is a movie that in any ways feels like a sweeping epic like a Gone with the Wind but better. Like but that's sort of like classic big <clears throat> movie um but of the best kind, you yeah. know, and that it's a uh, very uh, uh very closely observed in terms of its uh characters and also its view of uh, Chinese history and cultural history. It's a it's a great movie um, and worth checking out. Uh, on a, uh, hopefully you have a your movie hooked up to a big screen. Indeed, it, it's a gorgeous movie. Yes, and
0: movie is available on uh, Apple TV and Roku and that sort of thing. Um, so the sun's room, farewell my concubine. Those are just two of the thirty movies you can see right now on Mubi, uh, and there is also a special offer for you, the listeners of Battleship Retention. You can try movie free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com, that's dot com slash Battleship, to redeem now.
1: All right, uh, and you should also head over to tweakedaudio.com for professional quality earbuds in a variety of styles and colors, and they're very stylish and they're very colorful, and we're big fans. We use them all the time, nonstop. We're using them as we speak. David, um, I accidentally broke mine.
0: I accidentally uh, slammed them in a car door. Is that true? Which uh, look, movie? uh, Not movie. uh, Tweaked might make. Well, maybe movie does too. But tweaked might make some great earbuds. But they're not impervious to getting slammed in a car door. (laughs) Sure. sure. So, uh, so I'm going to need to uh, need to purchase more and
1: i'm going to oh good i was i thought you were gonna like specifically on the podcast ask ask bruce, hey, bruce. To, send us some more samples um, um but yeah so if i wanted to purchase
0: some how would i do that
1: well, you go to tweaked and that's where they're available for a low low price but if you put in the offer code pretension once you reach checkout you get one third off that low low price and no shipping charges so it's tweakedaudio.com offer code a pretension Let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. Let's talk about what we're getting into. All right, because there's a. Everyone, get your calculators out. There's yeah. There's a. There's a clue that you guys didn't catch hidden in the, in in, in the episode number for the, for the uh, observant battleship retention loyalist. And
0: if you just look slightly to the right, you will actually see what the episode is about. But if right. you just want Let's to, you, do you that. want to focus
1: on the number, no, that's just fine. Look at the number. Now you'll notice that it ends. In a zero, okay, and yet the number that precedes that zero is neither a zero nor a five. Mm-hmm. Now, if you know your shit, Battleship Retention style, yeah, if you got your Battleship Retention hat on, yeah, right, you've seen the world through your Battleship Retention tinted glasses, then you know what that means. Yeah, it means it's profiling time. That's right, time to do some profiling. Um, just like. <laughs> america's police forces there we go all over the country <laughs> so following in their lead and engaging in some serious hardcore profiling so you decided to appropriate the joke i made off mike last week <laughs> uh you know i'm like robin williams you know <laughs> i just a sponge i don't i'll write you a check afterwards <laughs> okay fair enough um and we are uh we are going to do i don't want to build this up um
0: but this is a, this It's is one, been built up. We don't need to. It's anymore.
1: one we promised to do a gajillion episodes ago, yeah. um, and there's probably some other ones, but we are ready to finally tackle the career of maybe the uh, most uh, notable editor in cinema history, hmm. would you say? I don't know. It's hard to say, that, and that's uh,
0: listeners. Feel free to weigh in on that. The most yeah. notable editor in history, I think, Robert Wise, uh, uh-huh. who because he went on to direct as well. Yeah, I, and Walter Murch has done one or two things, but
1: uh, as well, a director. we will talk about one of his things as a director. Indeed, uh, um, but, but yeah, I, this I, is Walter Murch. He didn't let me say. You said it. Oh, sorry, you slipped yeah. it in there, subliminal style. Um, I think an argument could
0: probably be made for uh, Thelma Shoemaker um, uh-huh. as an editor, like uh, especially because when you think of the way that Martin Scorsese makes films and how much of that is a function of the editing.
1: But I guess it depends on whom you're asking. Okay. Because I would say, let's just start with the fact, let's let's start with the, In the Blink of an Eye, sure. right off the bat, which is basically, Walter Murch is the editor who wrote what many consider to be the definitive book about film editing. Okay. Um, and it's a book that I recommend, even if you have no interest in being an editor. Mm-hmm. You and I, you know, I... I'm sure we know there are a lot of we have a lot of listeners who know more about movies than we do. True. But I also know we because we get emails from them uh, and they're always very touching. We also have a lot of listeners who are maybe younger or newer uh, to film or who are um, hopefully we are just part of the balanced breakfast of helping them become better, sure. uh, uh, xenophiles or more ro- well-rounded xenophiles. We, yeah. we are certainly not the only, we are merely a bowl of frosted flakes. <laughs> like you cannot <laughs> live on that. Yeah. I'd have to think we're the glass of orange
0: juice. Ugh. Oh, you don't like orange juice. That's no, weird. But I'm not a huge fan of frosted flakes either.
1: I like orange juice a lot. No, thank you. Uh, It's, I don't drink orange juice as much as I want to because it's so sugary and I'm trying to like, you know, be healthier, but, uh, I could drink orange juice all day. No, thank you. Not for me. Oh, I love it. Um, you get some apple juice in there. I like apple juice. I like a pineapple juice. That's a good one.
0: I don't don't know if I've ever had a pineapple. Oh, no, that's not true. Yes, I have. And, uh, it was fine. I I I love, I love cranberry juice. I don't care for cranberry juice. I thought it was grape juice once. Maybe that was the issue (laughs) because I thought it was grape juice. I was expecting grape juice. It was not, so I basically spit it out.
1: Yeah, see, I tend to spit out grape juice even if I know that's what I'm drinking because I find grape juice to be gross. Yeah. I always have. Well, I think the problem here is that you're drinking something that you know <laughs> you don't like. <laughs> I don't know why I keep doing <laughs> yeah. it. Um, anyway, how the hell did we get on orange juice? Uh, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yes. So, I want to talk about, in the, just mention in the blink of an eye, if you are a budding cinephile, even if you have no interest in being in being an editor, you might have heard us and other people who know things about movies—not that we're experts, but mm. we're pretty close. We do, all right. uh, we know a lot of shit. You might have heard people say that editing is the essence of filmmaking. Yes. That it is, you know, filmmaking is in many ways a—it's every art form smashed together. But the thing that makes film make film in cinema its own art form, the thing that other art forms don't have is editing. So I, I,
0: I mean, I always say it's the fact that the camera moves and okay. then editing. You
1: can do a flip book and still photography can move, right? Yes, I guess so. Okay. So I'm saying there's nothing like editing really in other right. uh, art forms. So even if you have no interest in being an editor, this is not just a textbook. I think everyone should read in the blink of an eye. Also, it's like 200 pages. You can read it in Mm -hmm. a weekend. It's no, it's no problem at all. Most people could probably read that in a day. I'm a slow reader.
0: Appropriately. Um, Walter Murch wrote a book that was really pared down. Yeah. He trimmed all
1: the fat off. Um, and so in that sense, because he wrote in the blink of an eye, one of the great books about film and filmmaking, um, he might be the most notable editor of all time, but yeah, it is arguable. Uh, send us your, I don't know nominees and let's not forget roderick james let's not forget roderick james yeah um but uh have you read in the blink of an eye i have not okay um you should you should take my advice and read it but the um the premise hidden in the title there is the idea that when a film is well edited the cuts should come naturally and almost instinctively as a blink that, that you all, that it should be uh, that editing a film should be nearly invisible, uh, because it should, it should happen almost when you subconsciously or maybe like primitively, almost, uh, primevally like expect it to when you blink, that's when the cut happens. Even yes, which
0: I, which I agree with. Uh, Not across the board. There are always exceptions. That's true, yeah. Sometimes, like, it's it's meant to be a jarring thing. But even movies that are highly stylized... Because one could say that that definition of editing is, lends itself to like, well, sure, like with naturalistic films, but if something is like uh, high high energy or something like that, it's like, well, if it's high energy, if it's highly stylized, it's going to be highly stylized in performance mm-hmm. in the way it's shot, and so the editing will simply follow suit, and it will still match the emotions of the characters of the audience, and it will still be in its own strange way invisible, so yeah, yeah it just it seems to and that's like that, that is why film ma- That's why editing is filmmaking is because that is how you more so than any of these other things. That's how you set the tone of what the film is going to be. Um, and that's how you can extract emotion from an audience. You know, you want to have some quick cutting. You It's like you want the audience to be uh, on the edge of their seat. You want their her- hearts to be racing. You get some quick cutting in there. You make sure you cut to just the right things. Um, You know, if you want, but at the same time, if you want to just draw the audience in and get them like really staring intently, you actually may not cut at all. You know, Mm -hmm. like that is also an editing choice, and it is just it's it's something that is perpetually astounding to me.
1: Yeah, and uh, Walter Murch is uh, the guy who, like I said, literally literally wrote the book. Uh, The other reason he has an argument for. Now we're generally going to go chronologically, but that's a little difficult with yes, him it is. for a couple of reasons. Um, but one of the other reasons he has a, an argument for being most notable is that he was the guy mm-hmm. who fixed Touch of Evil. Yes, right now. So far as it can be fixed, I'm yeah, yeah. I I'm luckily young enough that I've never had to see the non-Walter Merch edit of Touch of Evil. I saw it on VHS. Yeah, I've, I've never watched it. Uh, don't care to. Yeah, <laughs> um, Still interesting. You know, It's hard to screw that up. Yeah, tell the backstory there, because I've been talking so, too much. Okay, uh, Touch of Evil. Orson Welles uh,
0: made the film his way, and uh, Universal did not care for it. And so they recut it. Um, they cut some stuff out. They redid the opening scene. You know, if you if you're familiar with Touch of Evil, and if if you've seen the version that at this point many of us have seen, um, you know the the recut scene, one could say the director's cut. um, Then you're familiar that that opening scene is all one take. It's about three minutes long, and it's a camera. It's a camera following a car over buildings through alleyways. uh, A camera following a car. The camera's going over buildings and through alleyways, but the car is just on the street. Um, I'm glad you clarified that because yeah, I
1: having seen it knew exactly what you sure. Meant,
0: but I imagine someone yeah. hasn't seen it. It's like, wow, Orson Welles is getting really off on guard yeah, yeah. with this <laughs> fascinating
1: Batmobile of a car. Um, but yeah. And so, uh, what's more, what's harder to believe though, a flying car in an Orson Welles movie or Charlton Heston as a Mexican? <laughs> I'd say 51%, 49% <laughs> flying car. Okay. Um,
0: but, uh, so what the studio, so that's, it's an amazing shot. It's an amazing feat. And it seems somewhat, invi- it's, it's an org- it's a cinematography decision. It's a directorial decision, obviously. But, uh, and that also does not call attention to itself immediately, but what the studio, but the studio put, uh, credits over that. So uh-huh. it's definitely lost at that point. Um, and there was a, there was a, a thing where. The movie For the first 45 minutes, the movie cuts back and forth between Charlton Heston and Janet Lee, um, so you can see their separate stories, whereas the studio put it, took those scenes and put them together, so you see what Charlton Heston is doing, and then you see what Janet Lee is doing. Um, and in doing so, even though they are each given chunks of time, it sort of establishes that Charlton Heston is the lead, because mm-hmm. we're seeing his stuff first, and that Janet Lee is less important. And by but by cutting back and forth, it establishes that what their separate experiences are equally important. And so, um, so all of this, so the studio did their own cut. The film still is good. It still looks beautiful, of course, um, and it's still it's still a perfectly fine movie. And for many years, that was what Touch of Evil was. I mean, there are people who, you know, saw it in the '60s and '70s and thought like This is a great movie. It was considered a great movie at the time, um, but Wells is not happy with it, and when he saw the studio cut, he wrote a, an infamous 58-page uh, memo, literally going bit by bit saying, you should make this change, go back to what I did, here's why I did it, and here's why it makes it a better movie. Just 58 pages of just explaining why this works. And so, and the DVD
1: it, has it on like right. It does. You can read it, which yes. I haven't. And the Blu-ray, the
0: Blu-ray set is three discs. There's the theatrical the, the, the theatrical cut, the Wells cut, and then kind of this other one that was somewhere in between uh, somewhere in between um, before Universal gave the whole thing over to Walter Murch and said, "Okay, here's all the footage. Here's Wells' memo. Mm-hmm. Get to work." And so Walter Merch went along using that 58-page memo as a guide. Now the reason that it's not seen as a 100% official director's cut is because this is simply Wells responding to what to the 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 studio cut and saying, "Well, you should do this." It's not completely known if he's if this memo is you need to return the film exactly right. to how I made it. It could be him adapting to what they did and trying to appeal to something that to the product that they have put out so it's not as official as one can get but most people agree it's pretty close Um, and so they brought walter merchant to do this and this is a thing that has sort of become while he still you know edits films uh just and he's their primary editor he is kind of the guy that you bring in to recut stuff that that exists. (laughs) Like there was the Godfather saga, right? Where I believe it was USA, um, uh, working with Francis Ford Coppola brought in Walter Murch to take Godfathers one and two and put and recut them in chronological order so that you're seeing, you know, here's Vito in, in Italy you know, kind of establishing himself and then coming over to uh, – coming to America, establishing himself there, going back to Italy and all that kind of thing. Go And then – so that's Robert De Niro and now we're seeing uh, Marlon Brando and now it's the, the baton is being passed to Al Pacino. So you're seeing that as like one long like four or five-hour movie. And – you know, most people say that like, that is not a necessary project, but it's something that is interesting, you know, putting something that is not in chronological order in that is something that is always to me interesting. Um, and so they brought in Walter Murch who has experience of taking existing footage and putting it together in a way that makes it seem as seamless as possible. Mm -hmm. Like when you watch that, that, uh, for all intents and purposes, that Wells cut, it seems pretty seamless. It doesn't look like, well, they're making do with what they have. Like, it looks like a finished product. Like, this is, if you didn't know any better, you'd say this is absolutely, because it feels, as far as the editorial decisions, right. it feels like a Wells film. Like, when I watch any of his other films, this is how they feel. It doesn't feel like somebody, like Walter Murch came in and put his own spin on it. He was able to approximate the editing of Orson Welles, and my guess is he was able to approximate the editing of uh, of a Francis Ford Coppola, and I know that he had worked with him before. And when it came time to do Apocalypse Now Redux, I believe he's the one they brought in.
1: Yes, um, but the difference is between Touch of Evil and those is right. that he was the editor yes, originally. so, so it he, makes sense. Um, yeah, because uh, now we can get into his career a little more, uh, but still... We're talking about Walter Merch, the editor, but he is actually as much, if not more, in terms of Peter credits on IMDb, mm-hmm. uh, sound designer and sound editor. Okay. Um, and that's kind of where you see his earliest, some of his earliest uh, uh, credits is before he was editing Picture, um, which um, the first one he has a credit for here is Julia of 1977. Okay. But he was doing sound starting with... He did the Rain People with, with uh, um, uh, Francis Ford Coppola. He did THX 1138, mm. American Graffiti, and most notably, The Conversation, which yeah. is a movie in which the sound is, is yeah, it is the movie yeah. uh, it, it, in many ways. Um, and I, I just find that um, very interesting. That I, I don't think I get the impression that for Walter Murch, those are. those are not as disparate camps as we tend to, as we may think of it, because we put everything in categories and like, this is your job and this is the department of, this is the sound department, this is the editing department. Um, But for him, I think that the things you do to build a film, uh, a work of cinema after it's been shot, um, those all go together, you know, and the sound is very much a a, a part of that. Like, you you heard the um, analogy of, um making a film that to 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 compare making a film to cooking a meal have you heard okay. this i don't think i have um writing the screenplay mm-hmm. that's writing out your grocery list yeah shooting the movie is going to the grocery store and buying everything yeah it's in editing that you're actually cooking the meal sure and so I think to uh, I get the impression that to Walter Murch, the editing of the film and the editing and uh, you know mixing of the sound is all part of that same creative process. Well, I th- yeah, I, I definitely think so. Um, you know, in film in in film
0: school, and this is a thing that I I'll preach all day long is the big thing that I learned from a technical standpoint is how vital sound is to creating. I'll use a term that has been on my mind lately because I've been watching uh, Project Runway. If you want to tie everything together, uh-huh. and make it cohesive, right
1: sound will do it. Like that is how you can sell any reality. Now what if you uh, want to create a striking silhouette, or tell a color story, or drape a garment? Does this have anything to do with making movies? These are all, these are all project only. I I could probably, I could probably, uh, you know what? I
0: could make those work. Okay. What do you think of that? (laughs) Um, all right. But no, it's, uh, and so I do think, and when you think about like what edit, what sound design is and sound editing, it's like, okay, I'm going to, I need to, I just use the term, but like I need to sell the reality. I need to make this work, this shot work. Mm-hmm. And in that same way, that's what editing is, is I'm assembling all these disparate elements into one cohesive thing. And so, and it's odd that uh, I recently just, uh, I recently saw um, X-Men Apocalypse. And something that I'm perpetually fascinated with is the fact that John Ottman is the composer and the editor. I don't know of anybody else that does that. That's interesting. Yeah, you know. And at Comic Con a couple years ago, he was part of the the panel on uh, superhero music, and people said like, "Now you're the editor and the composer." And he's and they said like, "What's that like?" He goes, "Oh, it's exhausting. <laughs> um, how could it not be?" Yeah. But in that sense, it's just like I feel like once you get locked into that. You kind of have to do both, you know. What's he going to do? Compose to somebody else's uh, <laughs> e- flow of editing, or vice versa? Of course not. And I feel like it does. Fl- there's a natural flow of I started in sound and sound editing, and now I think I can move into the- in the same way that Robert Wise can start at editing and move into filmmaking. Like I think there's a natural. Whereas a, s- a cinematographer doesn't necessarily go there, but when it comes to construction. And how best to, how best to shape and frame and sell once again the reality of the film? I think sound and editing will just lead you, whether you choose to
1: go there or not, yeah. can lead you to directing. Um, I, I started the conversation when I was listening to his uh, pre-picture editing sound credits, but he also did uh, worked in the sound on sound for The Godfather Part Two. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, when I said earlier that he was the editor of the. When I when you talked about the Godfather saga. Right. Um, I was mistaken because he only was the picture editor for the Godfather Part Three. Oh, okay. He worked on the Godfather um, Part Two, and I guess not even the Godfather, just the Part Two uh, mm. in the sound department. So, yeah. um, hold your emails. You don't have to send me emails about okay. that. Okay. Uh, but I guess let's talk about him, about his editorial career. But we'll we'll come back to sound because a- as it goes on, you'll find a lot of the stuff. Um, he's credited in, uh, in both. Before we do
0: this, can I actually jump into, can I, can I kick, the, kick this off with my first, I would say, awareness of him. Okay. Which is to yeah. say, I saw a movie and the editing struck me. And I said, I, who put this together? The movie, strangely enough, was Cold Mountain. I saw it in 2003. That, mm-hmm. is, a, that is not a movie I like. Okay. But when I saw it, you know, it's a long movie. It has an epic quality to it. And I saw it and all I thought of were flaws. But the big thing that I thought was like, I don't know what I would take out of this. Like everything seems necessary. Every, now that is also a function of how it was written and that kind of thing. But just like everything seems necessary. Everything seems tight. It doesn't, it's an epic that doesn't seem overwrought. It doesn't seem indulgent. Like it seems weird to talk so about what like is your problem with
1: it? What was that? What is your problem with it? I, I've always liked the, that be more the than writing you you okay. know,
0: and some of the characters. You and, mean like the and, dialogue? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, you know,
0: it's the, don't go wrong. It's plenty overwrought, but it, fe- it seems it's weird to describe that film as lean mm-hmm. and not David lean, you know, yeah. but it's well, a it gets- film that seems stripped down in the editing. I remember just being like, how did they do this? This seems strange. And I, that's the first time I think I took the time To say, who is that editor? I need to know.
1: Well, let's go ahead and talk about Cold Mountain now, actually, because there's something else I want to mention about that. Um, Something I really like about Walter Murch, and this um, goes back to one of our very early profile episodes about one of my favorite cinematographers of all time, John A. Alonzo. Now, this is a guy who was, you know, shot Chinatown was of the same generation as Walter Murch and was, by the time of the late nineties, early two thousands was an elder Statesman. Mm-hmm. And yet he's Johnny Alonzo was one of the first guys to really, the first big name cinematographers to really, uh, embrace digital mm. cinematography. Mm-hmm. We, we talked about that on the show, but that was a long time. It was a while ago. Uh, Walter Murch, very similar. He was one of the first guys to start editing digitally. Um, in fact, uh, where is this? I, I wrote this. um, so, the Oscar that he won for English Patient, mm-hmm. the English Patient, the one and only, was the first to be awarded for an electronically edited edited film using the Avid system. So, he, okay, was, yeah. he, he used Avid. Cold Mountain, for which he was also nominated, I can't remember, did he win? Um, I can't remember if he won the Oscar. Oh, uh, he, probably, no, he was, that was nominated. That
0: was probably return of the king. Yeah,
1: so he was nominated. Cold Mountain, this mega million dollar epic big mm-hmm. star, uh, you know, uh award season uh, uh epic uh he edited on consumer grade final cut pro on mac on a mac mm. computers that you could buy at the store yeah uh and was nominated for an oscar for it and i i, I really respect that he's a guy who uh is not um set in his ways he's not yeah Yeah, he's not. I don't know. I was gonna be disparaging about someone, and that's not what we're doing. Sure,
0: let's not. Let's (laughs) let's be. Let's let's stay positive. But you know, and it seems weird to say that because it seems weird to say what I said because a lot of that could be put down to the script. But you and I know enough about filmmaking to know that if something feels tight, if something feels lean and stripped down, and where to the point where every shot feels necessary. Yeah, that's an editorial thing it's a direct it's directorial as well but that is an editorial decision it's not in the script because the script might not say you should cut to a close-up here or something like that like despite my not liking that movie i i I dislike i dislike the movie in
1: spite of (laughs) the way it was made um so let's get into his career proper okay now i haven't seen julia have you seen julia yes uh it was a while
0: ago because uh that is one of the f- that is uh, one of the movies that jason robards won an oscar for playing dashel hammett oddly enough um hmm. and i liked it i don't really remember much about it i wish i did um so i can't re- i feel like i can't really talk about it in this regard
1: okay so then let's move on to apocalypse now which sure. is let's do it for a guy who's i mean at this point as far as credits credits as editor mm-hmm. on imdb this is his second one sure uh, it's actually his fourth because they put Touch of Evil on another older thing yeah. at the year, but he obviously did those later. Um, so he definitely jumped in with both feet because of, to make something that's not only an epic, but an um, unconventional sort of art epic, I guess,
0: <laughs> like Apocalypse Now. And one in which everyone was going insane. Uh, right. And he had to... I, I have to assume that the footage that Coppola was giving him, it's not that it was unusable, it's that it was like, what are you doing? I don't know what you're (laughs) trying to do here. I have to make this work. I need to put this together in something of a coherent way. And he does, but what I'll mention, and maybe there's a function of, you know, there's a significant amount of time between Cold Mountain and and, uh, Apocalypse Now, but what I will say is that You know, with Cold Mountain, I describe that though it is an epic, it is actually very lean and stripped down. Mm -hmm. Apocalypse Now is not lean and stripped down. Everything feels necessary, but it doesn't. But it's overflowing. Yeah. yeah. That's a great way of putting it. Uh, It's just everything about it is sort of excessive, but it doesn't, certainly editorially, it doesn't feel self-indulgent he's he's able to i think he understands what coppola is going for so he's allowed to let the environments sink in like he doesn't he recognizes this is not a plot movie we don't need to just keep moving forward you know the way that something like cold mountain does which is about a journey it's about this odyssey thing whereas with apocalypse now it's just as much if not you know probably significantly more so about just the environment, and just letting it—you said overflow, letting it overflow and wash over the audience. And I feel like the way that he cuts that together definitely reflects that. Uh, I'll throw it to you at this point. Sorry.
1: Yeah. Been, no. I mean, I, that's. I don't really know what else to to say except to I mean that the movie, the movie works because of Walter Murch, uh, and yeah. as does the Redux, which is. Yeah. Um, what, what is your What is your preference?
0: I mean, the big change with the Redux is just the the incorporation of the French plantation scene,
1: right? Like, I know there are other and changes. The um, yeah, when they uh, when they re-encounter the Playboy bunnies, right. uh, the, the in the like abandoned camp. Yeah, um, I feel like there's other stuff too because yeah. it's, it's it's a fair bit longer. It is, but it,
0: but like the flinch, the French plantation scene is like 25 minutes. That yeah. is a an, an entire chunk of a movie. Yeah, um, and so. I like the Redux. I think I, I think I even love it. Um, I love it too. I might prefer it.
1: I think I kind of feel like if you're, if you're going to be Apocalypse Now, go all the way with it. I think that be all of Apocalypse Now.
0: And I think that's that's a big thing that uh, the Coppola himself said is that at the time he wasn't super happy with the plantation scene, and so he cut it out. And in retrospect, he's like, I was wrong to, I was wrong to do that. Mm-hmm. This. Because if you're trying to do what we're talking about, which is have it be an experience and have it be this otherworldly experience, then that plantation scene, you know, yes, it's an odd detour from the story, but this isn't a movie about story. It's about capturing all these different elements uh, of this country in transition and seeing this ghostly past um, that is so finished Mm-hmm. Um, and having people encounter that and having and again like it feels like a haunted house it feels like the others you know where there's people just yeah. inhabiting this thing and just cutting themselves off from the rest of the world which to say cutting themselves off from the the reality of how things are now yeah and it just it fits so well with the overall mood and tone of the film even if it has nothing to do with kurtz it has nothing to do with the the mission that they're on but it has everything to do with the feeling of apocalypse now so you know what i think i would i think i've just talked myself into yes i think the redux fits i I think it seems to fit more with what coppola is trying
1: to do was really trying to do all right uh let's move on because we're taking way too long um, this doesn't need to be a crazy long episode sure. I feel like we like front loaded it with talking about why editing is important and why sure. Walter Mer- Merch is important and we talked about well, I don't think we've talked about an editor before have we uh, no we haven't okay. so this is yeah so I feel like when it comes to the actual films we don't need to spend too long on all of them because yeah. uh, what often happens with some of these profiles is that we end up repeating ourselves a lot because yes. we find uh, recurring recurring things Yes. Uh, so let's move on to um, Captain EO which I've never seen I have Uh and
0: you know I think it's super cheesy there's a lot of things I don't like about it but you know it is a it is a film that takes place in space so there's like space battles but then there's also a lot of dancing yeah I recognize I just said all that together Uh in one short film but you know uh again a lot of this is is the footage that that merch is being given but you know i've seen like concert footage i've seen action movies i've seen uh dance movies where they just they want to try and put you in the middle of everything and so you don't really have an appreciation for the choreography but at the same time if you stay too far away at any point then it, you you, you mm-hmm. genuinely feel far away so knowing when to cut in and then pull back out it's an editorial decision, yeah. so that you kind of feel the rhythm of what the, of the music and of the dancing. And even though, again, the movie's super cheesy, like you you're going to see Michael Jackson dance, but you also want to be. But it's also a movie, albeit a silly one, so you also want to be pulled into the middle of it. So, and I on that level, when it comes when everybody's dancing uh you know i'm
1: i'm i'm invested we got way more out of captain eo than i thought we would now do you also have the filmography up because i don't want to i don't want to skip anything that you want to talk about yes good call good call okay so uh
0: so you saw you mentioned captain eo uh the unbearable lightness of being i've never seen okay let's move on to ghost which which i loved as a
1: kid i haven't seen in a long time have
0: i seen ghost i don't think i've seen ghost actually I, I've seen a number I of have, scenes from it. I have obviously. good memories
1: of it. Yeah. I, I don't know if it really uh, holds up, but yeah. uh, it's good. The Godfather Part 3. Okay. Uh huh.
0: The Godfather films, and I know that he wasn't involved in, in, in all of them uh, in this way, but The, God, the Godfather Part 3 is a deeply flawed film but it also is so tonally different than the other ones. I I remember reading a description that said it was Baroque Mm -hmm. and that there is a, there's a definite, there's an operatic quality to it. And the fact that it ends at an opera should tell you something um, that it's like, there's such a tragic quality to it that this one feels more, I guess, not necessarily expressionistic, but it definitely, it does not feel like the other films. This and and when i think of the film i think of one that has more of an overflowing quality to it where the characters are more ideas than actual characters
1: is it it's interesting that we're talking about walter murch's philosophy of editing um being so uh straightforward and almost kind of zen and yet he keeps being associated with these massive Baroque overblown yeah. things. And this is cause this is Godfather three is not the last one. There's more of these yeah, that we're oh, going no to get to. We talked about cold mountain and there's, and there's more uh, to come. Um, but maybe that's the right choice. Maybe, a, maybe a, a guy, maybe if you're going to make a film as a director that is indulgent, maybe yeah. the, the, the counterbalance that you need yeah. is the guy who's going to, uh, keep things on course.
0: You know, as I, as I, scan ahead in his filmography I find myself let me okay I'm gonna put this out there you let me know what you think of this term he's a good editor of melodrama like he understands because even with stuff even when I'm describing him as being a a lean editor he's still editing stories where the emotions are very are very heightened you know in whether it be you know Michael Corleone or from the English patient or Cold Mountain or any of these other things Mm -hmm. um there's a certain flourish to these stories that I think he seems to understand and cuts them together for maximum emotional effect. And
1: right, but not maximum emotional indulgence. Right, exactly. That, that, I think that's what I'm talking about is keeping things yes. on
0: track. With the, I think with the exception of Apocalypse Now, because I think he was able to understand that everything about that movie, right. including the characters themselves, are
1: indulgent. Um, now there's a there's a few in here in the '90s that I haven't seen. Okay, um, I, I was going to skip ahead to the English Patient, but I think you might have seen some of these movies. I've never seen I Love Trouble. <laughs> uh, I was, did when I was a
0: kid. I, you know,
1: um, it was a movie that everyone forgot about until uh, it was <laughs> briefly mentioned in the first episode of The People Versus OJ Simpson earlier this year. Oh, really? Oh, <laughs> yeah. okay. Yeah, uh, that's <laughs> that's fun because um, I think when. It's when uh John Travolta as our Shapiro gets the news about OJ, he's talking with his wife about how they have tickets to the premiere of I Love Trouble that night. <laughs> Man, <laughs> that's that's the great. Scene. Yeah.
0: What a wonderful detail. Uh I did see Romeo is bleeding. Okay. And now that one is definitely a lean and mean kind of thing. Um it's not necessarily an action movie, but it's very much one of those like nineties crime thrillers, you know, there's but with a, a heavy uh eye towards uh noir. And so there's definitely a forward momentum. You know, I do I definitely don't remember it being particularly indulgent. Um and that one it's not like it's totally stripped down, but that is one where it's just like it's all about moving things forward and keeping us on edge. And it's been a long time since I've seen it. I, I saw it before I was really aware of um, – I was on the lookout for e- you know editing choices and mm-hmm. stuff. But I definitely – it's a film that I have a, a fairly good memory of and remember it ju- just being kind of not perpetual forward momentum, but definitely always – always moving forward so um and we can move on i saw i love trouble when i was young i did see first night somewhat recently probably about 10 to 12 years ago okay um and that's uh i think this actually is playing very well into my overall uh comment that i mean first night is about is almost as melodramatic as you get mm-hmm. you know where you know the music is swelling and and you know the editing you know he will he will uh, he will kind of linger lovingly on julio armand's face and stuff like that it feels like the lens has vaseline on it all the time um and you know and it's it's fine it works well um i'm not saying that he made bad choices but it's definitely that's a film that it doesn't necessarily feel indulgent. We'll stick with that word flourish. There's definitely a flourish to it that completely fits with the story
1: being right. told. So uh, we can now move on okay. to, to the English patient, which is yes. important to move on because I mentioned Francis Ford Coppola and there'll be more Coppola to come. Yeah. There's no one he's worked with more than Coppola. Mm-hmm. But second most probably has to be Anthony Minghella. That is his yeah. second uh, collaborator um, starting with the English patient, right? That's the first uh, one. Yes. Um, and uh, he does seem to, there, there, there does seem to be this, this, this thing developed, and we were talking about, about um, uh, you mentioned just sort of like classic melodrama. Yeah. And uh, that's what Anthony Mingella did to yeah. varying results, some of them good, some sure. of them bad. I would say English Patient is somewhere in the middle. This is a film, like, we need to talk about The English Patient, because you talked about watching Cold Mountain, thinking, what would you change about this? You literally did change The English Patient. I did, You yes. took it upon yourselves to do a fan edit of The English Patient, well, because fan, you fan's
0: pretty strong.
1: Because <laughs> you're the weirdest kind of nerd there is. <laughs> uh, because I get curious about
0: things. Uh, by the way, I was doing uh, a little... I was bored one night, so I decided to do a fan edit of uh, something else. Oh, what? That I have not talked about on here, and I guess I will now. Okay, let's hear it. I'm still working on it. So okay. I don't know. I've kind of I've I have not done anything on it for a while. And it is for all uh, the the title that I've come up with is Lord of the Rings Frodo's Journey. Uh-huh. Which is to say Lord of the Rings entirely from Frodo's perspective. Now from what I hear, the books are actually structured sort of in this way. So okay. If you're only following Frodo and Sam, then now for that first film you got the fellowship you're seeing Aragorn. You get away from that and it is Frodo, Sam and Gollum for a long time. They do they interact with some other characters here and there, but there are you know, you're not seeing it it's it's not an epic anymore.
1: Yo, what of the ents? Nothing.
0: You there are, there are kings you don't see, there are kingdoms you don't see. Rohan is not an issue, Gondor is not an issue. It's all about it is this three person journey uh occasionally interacting with the larger war but they've there it's it's and so putting all this together and and sort of watching it in a very rough kind of way um you realize like man this is a lonely lonely story from frodo's standpoint what's your total runtime? four hours oh wow so um and most of that is the first movie (laughs) yeah yeah um And so it was. uh, So that was a little project that I was doing because I do find, I do find it, it. For me, it's not unlike the idea of the Godfather saga. Like, what? How would this feel if it were in chronological order? You know. And for me, the English patient. The thing that got me was that the romance never worked for me, and so. But it's also split up by all these other things, and I thought, well, if I'm just, if I condense. The, the love story between Ray Fiennes and Kristen Scott Thomas into its own little film, you know, mm-hmm. uh, basically a 70-minute film, um, does it work? And it actually... It, does it work from a love story standpoint? And it does for me a little bit more um, because you're able to actually see the arc of Ray Fiennes' character a lot more. Um, so I'm not faulting Walter Murch uh, for trying to talk Anthony Minghella out of uh, the other aspects of the film. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's why I did it. It's a, it's, it was more just to see, can this work? Because people for, so, you know, for so long, including me, people have said like English patient, everything they're telling me to care about, I don't. Mm-hmm. And I thought like, well, what if you take a movie that a lot of people now kind of deride and just rework it a little bit so that we do feel what the filmmaker is insisting. We feel that it's like, Oh, this is this great love story. It's Like, well, I don't feel that at all, but could I feel that
1: now what you have to do is you have to make a really weird movie from all the parts you cut out of English patient and Lord of the Rings where oh, the Ents and Naveen Andrews are like hanging sure, out together. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> absolutely. And, uh, you know, Julia Binoche is like, Oh, I got to help all these, uh, elves, you know, <laughs> that have been stabbed. Uh, but yeah, English patient, you know, it, you, you mentioned that with these profiles, we tend to repeat ourselves and, and this is not going to be any different. Although when we get to a couple of these movies, I'll be able to emphasize uh, something a little bit more. Okay. English patient is a film that does feel in its editorial choices. It feels kind of stark. Um, because even though it's, it's cutting back and forth from, from, uh, or it's, you know, often, you know, dissolving back and forth from the past to the present and that sort of thing. Um, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of ornamentation to the way that it's cut together. It feels very, I'm, I, I don't want to use the term stripped down again cause it's definitely not that, but it feels, I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but like if apocalypse now is a film, it's a film that takes place in the middle of the jungle. The jungle is, Complicated. it's confusing. It's everything is overgrown and you use the term overflowing. And if he's sort of taking his editorial inspiration from the story being told and the place that it's being told, well, English patient, English patient is a love story that takes place in the desert. And the desert is a stark place. Right. And when I think of the way that's cut together, it see, it reminds me very much of cold mountain, which is just like, we got what we needed from this scene. It's time to move on and we're just seeing sort of snapshots of like pivotal moments in this relationship as remembered by this guy. And, uh, but then in moments, it's not that it's an action movie, but there are moments of action, like when that plane crashes Mm -hmm. and that needs to feel exciting and horrifying at the same time. And, you know, he meets that challenge certainly. And, uh, So I don't think I, from an editing standpoint, I certainly don't have a problem with English patient. I have a problem with it from definitely a script standpoint and any number of other things, but technically I have no problem with that movie at all.
1: Well, let's move on to Anthony Mingela's best film. No question. And maybe one of the best films of the nineties, the talents of Mr. Ripley. Yeah. Um, which this is less uh, stylistically. I think the, the talents of Mr. Ripley is less, uh, classical than yeah. the english patient. Yeah. Um kind of what I think what the the task set for Walter Murch is to take a film that is on the one hand kind of foreign is like formally like arch in that it's sort of what if it does have this feeling of like what if Hitchcock and Fellini made a movie together, yep. <laughs> you know? That's like the way it looks and feels, yep. but it's also an intensely psychological and psychologically interested film, not just in Mr. Ripley, but in a lot of the characters. I mean, yeah. think about how, um, kind of tragic Kate Blanchett's character is yeah. in that movie. And, um, and I, and I wonder, th- this is all just speculation because when we think of editing, we're thinking of how does one shot marry up with the shot after, after, mm. you know? Um, but the editor also, um, has a say, and I think you hinted this earlier, um, in terms of shot choice or take choice. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? There are, yeah, not shot choice, but uh, take choice. He's, you know, the sort of now everything's digital and they keep everything, but, the, yeah. you know, the way it used to go is they'd shoot a certain number of takes. The director would tell the camera system or whatever to keep takes blank, blank, you know, one, four, five, and seven right. or whatever. Uh, and then those are the ones that get printed. And then the editor has the, uh, has some say, uh, you know, often with the directive there in, in what, uh, shots are chosen. And I think, uh, like I said, this is all speculation, but Talented Mr. B feels like it was, the shots were chosen or the takes were chosen with an eye toward the character's performances. Do you sure. know what I mean? Like, because not the actor's performances, <laughs> right? The yeah. Characters. Well, both, yeah. uh, both in a way. Yeah. But, um, Uh, because you've already got Anthony Minghella and um, who shot Talented Mr. Ripley? Who shot the Talented Mr. That was a Um. sequel. Um, (laughs) I don't remember who shot Talented Mr. Ripley*, But you've got them making sure the movie looks as lush as it does. Yeah. Uh, But for it also to be a movie as effective as it is, you have to feel for the characters. And again, not just, not just Ripley. It is, does a good job, a creepy job of getting you inside Uh, Ripley's head but it's also a movie that gets you inside like Cade Blanchett's head uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's head Um, you get a little bit inside Philip Seamus Hoffman's head when it gets uh, cracked open with a bust sure Um, you don't really get to know Dickie all that much um, but that's kind of by design I think yeah um, but even in his final moments it's very sympathetic uh, to to Dickie and and I feel like there's 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 something, you know, we've seen Anthony, Anthony Minghella make bad films. And I feel like, uh, Walter Murch is in the, in, when it comes to from Mr. Ripley's success, he's the thing keeping the disparate elements of the movie on the rails. I think you were dead
0: on when you said that this could have been Hitchcock. And uh-huh. if it was John Seale, I was going to say John Seale, mm, but you didn't, did you? I didn't. I should have said um, I was too afraid of looking stupid. That happens to me all the time. And then I want, and then I say, it's just like, oh, that's what I was thinking. And it's like, they don't believe me. Yeah, um, exactly. So, uh, yeah, I think, um, oh, now I forgot what I was going to say. Damn it.
1: We also skipped over something, by the way. Oh, did we? What did we skip? Well, not editing. We skipped over his dire- directorial. Let's oh, save that for the ju- end. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's, but let's not forget to talk about his uh, directorial effort.
0: But I do think uh, that—oh, that's right, because you said this could be very much a a Hitchcock type of thing, um, and it would still have been a really good movie. But I think this is—when you think about what is Talented Mr. Ripley, it's all about how people are presenting themselves. And they want to present themselves as well as they can. So you have a film where the location looks as beautiful as it can look, and it's filled with good-looking people. Mm -hmm. you know, And so— Good-looking people on vacation who are who are working very hard to appear effortless. So there's so if you were to take this and approach it as a thriller, yeah, and just have it be kind of like oh, there's suspense, but there's definitely a languid quality to these characters, and I think there's a languid quality to the editing, Hmm. um, so that you can just kind of sit and relax with these people, and sometimes even forget just how treacherous everybody is underneath. And again, it would have worked perfectly fine as a thriller, but it wouldn't be a movie we talk about because it is a thriller dressed up in this very, uh, in kind of a casual beauty. Uh, I think that's what makes it so notable. And, and the fact that he knows, he knows not merely when to cut, but you're right. Like to focus on the characters and not the plot, um, I think that's one of the things that makes the film feel so it actually enhances the tension as opposed to standard thriller cutting. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I look at this movie and I'm, and I find myself wondering cause I look at, I look at English patient. I look at cold mountain and I think, how did Anthony, how did he have this movie in him? It feels <laughs> so unlike what he does and he does it so expertly. Um, I love talented Mr. Ripley so
1: much. Let's move on to K-19, The Widowmaker. Okay, let's do it. Uh, now, as you know, I'm a big fan of this movie. I'm a big fan of Catherine Bigelow yeah. in general. Um, and it, part of it is because her movies, even even something like what Zero Dark Thirty is what, like two and a half hours or yeah, something? Yeah, about that, yeah. Uh, like, her movies always yeah. feel super tight. Yeah. And Walter Murch definitely brings that to K-19, which is a movie that could have seen, could have been overblown and ridiculous. And I yeah. think a lot of people assumed it was cause it has an unwieldy title and yeah. it also has big stars. Yeah. Harrison Ford and Liam Neeson doing broad Russian accents. Yeah. I a, will tell you when the mission is over. Yeah. That yeah. sort of thing. Uh, uh, in a period piece. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it could have been a disaster and unfortunately too many people think it is, uh, when it's actually a really tight little thriller. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, um, Walter Murch's uh, eye toward keeping things on course, which is something we've come back to again and again, yeah. uh, made him the right person uh, to work with with uh, Catherine Bigelow. Because um, I mean, look at Point Break, which he didn't do, but is also one of the one of my favorite movies in, uh, of all time, and one of the top five greatest action movies of all time, if you ask me. Um, that's a movie that is so, in many ways, so dated and of its period that it could be laughable. Yeah. Uh, And it also has, um, for this, like, what's actually a pretty lean and gritty action movie, it has some pretty uh, astounding photography. Mm -hmm. Um, But and Bigelow's impulses are always to keep things lean, as I said. Uh, And that worked out here, worked out with K-19. You like K-19, right? I do. I like it quite a bit. And, you
0: know... I think I think a word that we can use to describe Walter Murch, both in his editing style, but also in his philosophy. I mean, you talk about how he's he was an early uh, adopter of digital editing. Yeah, like I think he's willing to just kind of go along with and not be too like set in his ways. He's go- willing to go along with whatever needs to happen. It's oh, you're making you're making a submarine movie a submarine thriller and the that is the nature of that story does need to be stark because mm-hmm. it's very contained it's very claustrophobic there's not a lot of things to distract the characters because they're seeing the same thing all the time and they're all just trapped together and so you know I'm talking about like a languid pacing for talented Mr. Ripley. Then he turns around and has this not necessarily breakneck pacing, but just tense all the Mm -hmm. time, very taut uh, and lean, uh, as opposed to the overflowing editing style of Apocalypse. Now he's able to adapt his editing style to what the film needs. And you know when you look when you go from you know, English Patient to Talented Mr. Ripley to K-19 to then Cold Mountain, I believe is the next one. You see very different movies, although three of them all by the same filmmaker, four very different movies that all feel spot on. Like, I don't have anything negative to say editorially. And, you know, editing is something that I, bad editing is something that I will sometimes notice. Like, it's just... It's like that probably should have cut at a different place because it looks like the characters are all standing around saying, "Well, wait, now what do we do?" <laughs> um, like they're they're one second away from looking at the camera and bang and saying, "Is that good?" Um, you know, it's. Uh, and I was watching. So when I went to the International Christian Film Festival. I was giving a uh, lecture on uh, basic aesthetics, like uh, basic film aesthetics. And when it came time to talk about editing, I compared two different movies. Uh, I compared God's Not Dead to Whiplash um, because they had very similar scenes of a, a very strict teacher coming into his classroom and establishing dominance. And there's you know and whiplash is a very well edited film it won the oscar for it that year um god's not dead there's almost no editing choices it's all just okay we got the shot reverse shot because we want to see somebody's reaction okay we're good i'm about to fall asleep you know (laughs) um but what's more is there's also there's a really really awkward edit uh in god's not dead where it's kevin sorbo like in a medium shot to kevin sorbo in a slightly closer shot not a close-up that is a cut that can justify itself it's more just oh uh we forgot to get uh, the full line in one take so uh let's just cut a little let's just cut them together and see if anyone huh. notices it's horrible and i don't necessarily blame the editor for that i blame the director right but you know when you watch movies where you know the way I described it in my talk is that a lot of Christian filmmakers tend to view the camera and editing, the things that make movies what they are, they seem to view them almost as a as a necessary evil, uh, as opposed to a tool they can use <laughs> right. to enhance this. And so, you know, Walter Murch, I think, is an editor, and I know we can continue to talk about him. But like he's a he's a guy who totally understands the power of editing and the way it can be used to enhance. The world, the story, the characters—any of these things—and adapt that to what the director wants to focus on. Maybe the director doesn't care so much about the world building, but cares a lot about the characters. And Walter Murch can edit in such a way to focus on that. Like that I does said, seem to be coming to the very adaptable.
1: Yeah. Um, I feel like we can probably get through the next few pretty quickly. Yeah, because I haven't seen a lot of these. Um, So um, you've seen Jarhead, though? I have. It's been a while.
0: Okay. uh Um, I saw it when it was a new release on DVD. And this is, you know, this falls back into the languid thing again. Because it's a war movie, kind of. It's about soldiers. They are at war, and they do see battle, but a lot of it is just kind of them waiting around and just getting bored and kind of going crazy and that sort of thing. And so... You know, this is not a film that needs to be cut together quickly. It's not, you know, it's not K uh, K-19 or anything like that. But I remember, you know, the battle sequences, um, and it seems even wrong to say battle sequences, but you know, the occasional fights, um, you know, were cut together in a way that that worked for the film, you know, that, w- that definitely got you inside those moments, But also, it's not a situation where, okay, we've got kind of this long, these long sequences of people just hanging out and being kind of goofy, punctuated by these moments of extreme action, and it's just like this jarring thing from one moment to the next. It all does seem to, I don't know how he does it, but it all does seem to be one, once again, I'll use that word cohesive, like it all does seem to be coming from the same place emotionally because it it locks into that main character who's experiencing all of these things mm-hmm.
1: uh, as one person. So we, we can move on. Yeah, because neither one of us has seen the um, rejoining collaborations with uh, yeah. Francis Ford Coppola, unfortunately, Youth of That Youth, and Tetro. We, yeah. both, we both missed those. Uh, you saw The Wolfman. I sure did, and I like it more than most. Okay. And that's a horror movie, and oh, horror yeah.
0: has its own kind of editing. You know, where it's all about like knowing exactly where to cut um, in some cases, because, you know, as we saw from Hitchcock, sometimes a cut is a cut or sometimes a cut is a slash to the throat or something like that. And knowing, you know, especially early on when the werewolves are not really being shown, it's important to know where to cut to heighten our imagination. Mm-hmm. So that it's just like, oh, I think I saw something. Uh, or I think I'm seeing more than, than was actually being shown on screen. Um, and so I
1: actually, I like,
0: I, I like know, the Wolfman do. quite a bit.
1: Um, I saw the TV movie Hemingway and Gellhorn directed okay. by Philip Kaufman. I don't have anything to say. It's oh, not, okay. it's not very, I, I don't know what else to say that we haven't already said. And then okay. it's like, uh, he's, he's doing his best, but it is, uh, an, uh just a, Overstuffed and clumsy uh, screenplay. Mm, that's too bad. Not not a very good movie. But I, I mostly want to get past it because I want to hear you talk about Particle Fever. All right, because I know you really liked that movie. I did. I liked it a lot. Um, and, and it's a documentary, which I think is the yeah, it's the first documentary uh, on the in the whole um, filmography. Here. And I totally get why they got him to do it because.
0: It is scientific, you know, it's about the, the discovery of the, the God particle Mm -hmm. and you have people all over the world, like working together on different aspects of this. uh, And they're, you know, when the time comes and they're all like glued to their screens, waiting to see if they find this thing. And, you know, this could all have been very dry. You know what I mean? Like, I don't care about this. It's not that I don't care. It's that I don't know anything about it. And it could have just left me completely behind. But he cuts it together like it's K-19, where he puts you—basically, he's editing to the characters. Mm -hmm. This is the most—this is, one could say, the defining moment of everybody's career. Everybody we're seeing on screen, this is what they worked their whole lives for, and this is what they're going to dine out on the rest of their lives. And— but it also might not happen. Right. It, you know, Lord knows it hasn't happened plenty of times before this. And so, uh, so it's cut to, it's like, it's crackling with energy and, and excitement and you just can't wait to see what's going to happen next. And this is about a world that I don't care with a bunch of people who are not super charismatic on screen, <laughs> uh, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, but, but their excitement is out ab- is absolutely palpable. And uh, it's a well-made. It's a really well-made film all around, and it's really well put together. And um, I believe it's on Netflix. I don't know. I think it is. But, it, it definitely uh,
1: was for a while. I uh, I'm not sure if it still is. But yeah, but, seek yeah, it, I don't it know out. It
0: was because he is, you know, he's definitely the guy to to make this film and make it as interesting as it is.
1: Uh, any as, thoughts? And, and
0: as it should be. Um, any thoughts on Tomorrowland? Um, I don't necessarily. Like, As I was looking at this, I was just like, oh, he edited Tomorrowland. Not that it's bad or anything like that, but, um, you know, that's one where the editing actually kind of overcomes in a good way. It overcomes the limitations of the storytelling. Like, I like Brad Bird as a director, but I think this movie was both too ambitious and not ambitious enough uh, in the story that it was telling. But this is also a film about discovery. And so there, there needs to be an excitement of and a forward momentum. And I think he does what he can. I, I'm, I'm always interested to see what's going to happen next. And then the f- script fails me. Yeah, um, it's not a bad
1: movie though. You know, it's making me realize looking at these um, that he's edited a lot of movies that have action sequences in them. Yeah, but I would, I'd love to see Walter Murch do like Jack Reacher two or like. Ugh. Like a, or the next Fast and Furious movie, like a yeah. serious like action movie, yeah. that would be fantastic to see. I think.
0: Yeah, the idea of him doing, you know, and when you look at it, like the last few years, okay, he made it. He did a horror movie. He's done a documentary. He did Tomorrowland, which is kind of a family-friendly sci-fi movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, maybe he. It's kind of neat to think that he might be experimenting with with different uh, categories, different genres, stuff like that.
1: Yeah. Uh, speaking of experimenting, we're done with the editing, but we can't. Get out of this episode without talking about Return to Oz. Sure, Uh, his lone feature directorial uh, effort. He also weirdly his only other credit is an episode of Star Wars: The Clone Wars. Yeah, (laughs) which as that show has a great reputation, but I've never actually watched it. And it's animated, Uh, so I'm yeah, that's interesting interesting to me. Yeah, but uh, Return to Oz is a terrific movie that. if you watch now, it is very easy to understand why it had trouble finding an audience. It is yeah. such a bizarre movie, uh, but I'm
0: uh, I like it more every time I see it. I haven't seen it for a long time. I boy, I have a memory of it.
1: How could you not? Yeah. Um, so the premise for those I, I don't I know, I wish I didn't. It's a sequel to The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Um, but uh, it almost immediately. Um, established itself as being much darker because, uh, Dorothy's homecoming wasn't so, uh, pleasant as it is depicted in the, yeah. in, 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 in Victor Fleming's film. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, it is, uh, instead she's been sent to a mental institution essentially and is, uh, being threatened with, uh, electroshock treatment. Yeah. Um, and then she returns to, Returns to Oz to find that um, it sucks now and is completely falling apart and is overrun by uh, evil things like the, uh, what are those guys called? The Wheelies. Yeah, yeah, the Wheelies. The Wheelers, maybe? Yeah, something like that. Something like
0: that. Yeah. It's fascinating to me that uh, Walter Merch apparently is like, all right, done a lot of editing. I'm going to follow in the footsteps of Robert Wise. Mm -hmm. Time to start directing. I think I've got it. I (laughs) think I've got the project guys. Um, and yeah, and it's been so long since I've seen it that I, that I, um, I can't really speak about it. It's weird to be thinking about like to, to shift from him as an editor to him as a filmmaker because he didn't edit the film. Yeah. That's somebody else edited it. And so, but undoubtedly he must, he must've directed it with the editor in mind. How could he not? um, but uh, but I definitely you know the film definitely does not feel like uh, the first Wizard of Oz. It feels like a horror movie. It feels like a fantasy. Uh, it feels appropriately episodic, um, and uh, you know it's it's definitely a uh, cohesive film. Um, in that, just like we are we are in an Oz that is un, that is unsafe, De- like definitively unsafe.
1: Yeah yeah really i mean it's um it's a dark movie not just in its premise but in uh its its overall tone and themes i mean it it never really gets away from the suggestion that dorothy might actually be insane and none of this exists yeah. uh, which i think pisses a lot of true wizard of oz fans off yeah. uh, like the the, uh, the that suggestion um but so that's dark, but also the, the fates of the other characters. The, she she teams it has a very it has a somewhat similar structure to the Wizard yeah. of Oz, and that she teams up with a group of characters. Um, but the way that they are missing things about themselves, like in the original, or are just like fragile and thrown together creations, um, more so than in the Wizard of Oz, you become there's a lot of anxiety about how easy it will be for them to die. (laughs) Yeah. You know, Uh, a lot of characters die very easily. You know, Mm -hmm. there's the one, there's the the desert outside of Oz. I don't know if you remember this sequence. Uh, I do not. Um, well, she, when she first comes back to Oz, she finds herself on a rock in the desert. Mm -hmm. Um, and it turns out it's a desert that if you actually set foot on the sand, you cease to exist. (laughs) And so she has to get out of the desert, jumping from rock to rock. And if she falls off, uh, she will just go up in a puff of smoke. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's something the and then there's the the thing they because the there's a another c- uh, character um i think piper Laurie plays her uh, and has the ability to bring things to life okay. um and so they strap together like a moose head and a bed and some like palm fronds and turn it into this flying thing hmm. but also it could like fall apart at any time yeah um it's really sad and scary yeah. and like death is always around the corner. And then there's the part where all the, uh, the cabinet full of all the heads. Do you remember that part? Oh, yeah. That yeah. I remember. That's just on That's a classic horror movie. Yeah. Uh, well, and that's, the,
0: if you want to look at it, it's, it's weird to me that like fans of the wizard of Oz are pissed off. It's like, Oh, it's like, she's, it's like, it didn't actually happen. Pretty well established at the end of wizard of Oz. It's a dream. Like it, it definitely, right. It, it seems to be that. And if you want to look at it that way, it's like okay, well, this is the dream, and now here's the nightmare.
1: Yeah, you know, um, not that there's not nightmare stuff in Wizard of Oz. Sure, there is. There yeah, those, is. those those damn monkeys are yeah. terrifying.
0: But that's a uh, cool movie, The Wizard of Oz. It's great. It's really really great, and yeah. there's a lot of stuff there for grownups too. Like a lot, a lot of those jokes are solid. Huh. Um,
1: I should watch it again. It's been a while.
0: You know, and just stuff like even like and everything about the wizard himself is wonderful for adults. Like the idea of of rather than uh rather than give the scarecrow brains he, he's just like he goes oh well he just, here's a diploma that'll be fine <laughs> you know and that's great isn't you know that's funny. um um but
1: when i talk about that
0: movie yeah so return to oz it, it does i'll say this it makes me wish he directed more
1: yeah it, yeah it, it it holds up yeah um if you were a weirdo uh like (laughs) like we are sure uh and if you haven't seen it uh return to oz definitely uh check it out yeah uh so i
0: think now i know that uh looking at my uh imdb app i know that it says upcoming projects let's take a look uh let's take a look at what this is documentary what's it called it's called uh c-o-u-p coop or coo that'd be coo yeah coo 53 um,
1: oh, I, I, yeah, I read about that earlier today.
0: Okay. Theatrical feature documentary on the story of Operation Ajax, the CIA MI6 staged coup in 1953 in Iran to overthrow uh, that overthrew Prime Minister uh, Mossad. Uh, I'm sorry. I don't know how it's to Saturday? say it. Mossad, yeah, and reinstalled the shop. Okay. That is fascinating because that is a. It's another documentary which excites me, yeah. and it's one that's that has like political intrigue, but pro, but undoubtedly will have a note of tragedy and cynicism to it. Yeah, um, I'm excited for him to do, do another documentary.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's not uh, seen particle uh, particle fever. So, well, let's yeah, we'll uh, we'll 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 talk about that again uh, when it happens. Indeed.
0: Um, well, this was fun. I hope everybody enjoyed our uh, much ballyhooed. Yeah. Walter Merch discussion.
1: Yeah, hopefully you have a better appreciation of editing and hopefully you don't think we're stupid uh that's i hope that at the end of every episode that's that, the
0: thing i've been worried about all episode yes uh-huh. <laughs> uh
1: you if you want to tell us we're stupid you can find us at com, where you can read all of our stupid movie reviews <laughs> you can email us at our stupid email addresses david at com or tyler at BattleshipPretention.com. those are pretty stupid um yeah oh you were talking about stupid let's get to our twitter handles oh man i'm at davy pretension and tyler is at tyler pretension that's true Um, Now, you have uh, another stupid podcast. I do. More Than One Lesson. That's
0: right. Uh, MoreThanOneLesson.com, our most recent episode, is about the lobster, um, comparing it to Terry Gilliam's Brazil. And I will say that... Not that anybody cares because nothing's gonna come of it, but more than one lesson has once been once again been nominated for a podcast award. Oh. Thus making it nominated every year it has been in existence, and we have won zero
1: times. Uh but I think it, that's
0: gonna continue. Do you think
1: you guys get nominated and we don't? Because on More Than One Lesson, you don't openly mock the Podcast Awards, <laughs> as we have done. I'm pretty I mean, open we, about it over at More okay, Than One Lesson good.
0: as well. Yeah, because um, we,
1: I mean, we got nominated once or twice? Uh, we've been nominated once, yes. And we, uh, we immediately bit the hand that met us <laughs> by mocking the entire idea of the Podcast Awards and its founder specifically. Well, it's under new management, I'll tell you that. He's still, oh. he's still the face of the Podcast Like the gay awards. bar by my house. What
0: was that? The gay bar apartment under new management, according to the sign. Oh man. Oh man. Exactly. Now, uh, exactly. That's what it's new. That's what it's called now. Um, (laughs) you know,
1: so, okay. We'll, we'll just end there obviously. Right. Yeah. Uh, my other stupid podcast is called, Hey, watch this stupid. Um, and we'll be talking about, uh, one thing that I've already forgotten what it is. And also we'll be talking about the series finale of Nashville. Oh, all right. Um, I really should figure out what the other thing is I was supposed to talk about. All right. Thanks uh, for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.